In this week's episode, we will be speaking with visionary, mentor, and podcast inspiration, Michael Bell. We're going to get all in our feels about the shenanigans already taking place with these here Olympics. And in Gotta Do, we want you to read more, and we don't mean the shady kind. The podcast that encourages you to know, feel, and do to live your best life. This is Ward and Webster. Because you're shady. <laughs> I didn't read your intro down all the way, so I didn't know you were going to say that. And I was like, girl, she's really going in on this intro today. They can read a lot of different ways, can't they? They sure can. But I'm talking about like the literary version. <laughs> But we're going to get into that. Hello. Hello, Miss Ward. How are you? Delightful and delicious. <laughs> Delightful and delicious. Is it hot enough for you? <laughs> Let me tell you about these here. Um, as we spoke last week on the weather. <laughs> when I listened to that episode, I said, Isaiah is letting us know that we all going to die anyway. <laughs> so might as well just... Enjoy it while we're here. <laughs> uh, Basically. I mean, pretty much. But I have also, oof, speaking of, I don't even know. I was about to say dying, but that's morbid. So let me let me rethink that. Um, so now that these mask mandates are like lifted, lifted, I am confused. So I went to Home Depot last week. And I walked in and I was like, ooh, I smell the wood. And I was like, holy shit, I smell the wood. I don't have on my mask. And I ran back to my car and got it. And then I was walking in the store like, oh, we don't need them. Or don't need people, them. people don't have them on. And I was like, nah, bitch, you still gonna wear your mask. I just, I don't know. I had a, I had a similar experience. So there's a little coffee shop by my house that I love to go to. And they've been wearing masks the whole time. But the last couple of times I've gone in, I've noticed that none of the people, none of the customers are wearing them and they are they don't seem to be making them. And so this morning when I went in there, I was the only customer in a mask. I have been in quite a few places where I'm like, oh, I have my mask on, but I'm going to keep my mask on because, <clears throat> and also I was at a restaurant last week and the only person, only staff person I saw with their mask on happened to be our waitress. So the host Hostesses didn't have on masks, the bartenders, like, you know, people were coming into the restaurant with their mask on and then taking them off when they were eating or whatever. But now it is a, it's just a completely different shift. And I am trying to get adjusted, but now everybody is getting colds. So I can't, I've been talking to multiple people who are like, now these masks are off that were protecting us from the germs and shit. And now everybody yeah. got a cold. I think that's more of a function of people haven't been around people in a while. And that's so it. now that you're around multiple people, you're just going to catch the, the common germs that you would have been catching. You know, I've shared with you and our listeners previously on this show that I've been dying to get out of this mask. And so it's not that I have a problem with the, with the masklessness of the, of the establishment. It's just that I, I try to respect the policies. And mm -hmm. so as far as I knew, places like the coffee shop was still requiring them, but apparently Apparently not. Now, the one thing I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for Miss Uber and Miss Liv to change their <laughs> rules because I do take a lot of Ubers and we still have to wear them in the Ubers. 
And I would want that because that's a tight space. Like, I, I just feel like that is a, that's but it's, not. it's one other person. It don't matter. Because. So wait, wait, so wait, 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 wait. <laughs> you, would, you would eat in a restaurant with a bunch of people without masks, but you wouldn't ride in an Uber with one person without a mask. Are the windows up or down? <laughs> because again, so this is also my my thought about the um the airplanes because it's like there's no like real air circulation. Like it's that fake thing that they like are they filtering? I don't know. So that's a lot of people, no air circulation, a lot of breath. Period. So I'm going to wear a mask on a plane now. And, and in the Uber, same thing. Like, I just feel like it's tight and we're just exchanging the fluids. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to quote the CDC. I know. <laughs> I know you that's are. all I know what to do. If you're fully vaccinated, <laughs> yes. it's okay to be around other people without your mask. That's what the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says. And they're the experts, Bianca. Fair. But also this Delta variant. She given, I'm coming here to slay <laughs> and vaccine be damned. So I'm also just, I'm just also being cautious. And the fact that, you know, I still have these kids at home and they're not vaccinated. And so trying to, to think about that, but I have definitely seen the uptick in like allergies now in my house where last, last year allergy season was pretty good because we were all masked up, but now there are runny noses and all of that. And it's just, I don't know. I, I, yes, I too was eager to get out of the mask, but now it literally feels, it's a, it feels like a security blanket. Like now I'm, I'm confused and lost without it. So I'm gonna keep mine on. Nothing wrong with that either. And mm. let's not shame people. This is a perfect chance for yes. us to say this. Please don't shame your fellow citizens if they choose to wear a mask. That is their right. And let's support them exactly. in that. Exactly. Let's get into the things. All right. In this week's Need to Know, we have a sit-down interview with one of our, I think it's fair to say he's one of our mentors, Bianca, Michael Bell, who is the co-CEO and president of In Partnership. He's here to discuss the importance of Black leadership in the nonprofit sector and as a vital part of our liberation. Um, just a little heads up, we recorded this interview with Michael a few weeks back, um, and we finally have found the right show to put it in. And so here's our interview with the wonderful, amazing, and inspirational Michael Bell. So for this segment, we are very excited and honored to have a special guest with us, Michael Bell. Michael is the president and chief executive officer and co-founder of In Partnership Consulting. It's an organizational development and strategic change firm specializing in global cultural uh, competence and leadership development. Um, Michael is a mentor to both Bianca and I, and he was also the inspiration for the format of this podcast. So we will get into that in just a second. Michael, welcome to Warden Webster. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be here. It is, it, Warden Webster is now a thing, congratulations. Thank you so much. So do you know where we got our need to know, need to feel, and need to do from? Do you know who we stole that from? Who? <laughs> Did you say Look stole? In the <laughs> Bianca, you want to share this story? Because I feel like this is your story to tell. So when we were um, playing around with the idea of the podcast and what we wanted to do, like, were we going to do segments, topics? Like, what was that going to look like? And how are we encouraging folks to live their best life? Um, I was thinking of when we 
went through the minority leadership program with you and you explained pop and you said at the end of a meeting or call etc what do you want people to know feel and do and so I was like well damn Isaiah what do we want people to know feel and do and that is literally um, now how we you know do the show we want people to know feel and do something by the end of our hour with them so thank you you all are serving up inspiration is what you're doing. Congratulations. Thank you. We don't have any royalties to share with you right now because we have no not yet. <laughs> but at some point, we will honor you for all of your inspiration. Oh, thank you. I, you know what? I'm, I just feel so happy to know that this show exists and can't wait to listen to the more podcasts. Thank you. So we're going to get into the content of this interview in just a second. We wanted to have you on to talk specifically about nonprofit organizations, minority leadership, and and mentorship. But first, just Michael, how are you doing? How is the COVID life? How are things in California? Just give us a little check in on how you're feeling today. Thank you for asking. You know, it's been a, I feel like uh, someone who's been coming out from under a cloud. I, I just, uh, I received both my vaccinations at Allen Temple Baptist Church over the past uh, couple of months. My family and I have ventured out together into the world making small forays. It feels good. Um, I'm part of a queer meditation community for the past 10 years here. There's about 27 of us who meet at the former home of the Black Panthers every month to meditate and to be together. I think that we're trying to understand what is it that we've all lost all over this past year. And I think my healings wrapped up with actually naming what was lost and um, grieving that. And then also realizing that uh, we're in a, we're in a, a space of new beginnings. I don't think we're going to go back to where we were before. So I feel hopeful, but I also feel like I've got to do the work to understand what did I lose and what do I really want my life to be like uh, now. And I'm, I'm excited about that conversation that I'm having with myself, my family, and my friends. I think you make such a great point in terms of, of the grieving and what was lost. Um, I think a lot of folks can resonate with that. Also, maybe even what was lost that we don't want back. Right. Like, I feel like this has definitely been eye opening in terms of how we used to live and perhaps how it didn't always serve us. Um, And so just really realizing, I think for me this past year, just the importance of family and checking in and connection um, that's intentional because, you know, you have this pod now of folks that yeah. you, you know, that you're, you're with and, and, and sharing time with on an ongoing basis. And so, um, yeah, but at the same time that, that feeling of loss is definitely, it's real. It's real. Yeah. I think, I think underneath and all around what you're, we're talking about, Bianca, is the answer to the question, what really matters to me in my life now? And um, what do I want to stay? And what do I want to go away? Choice by meticulous choice. 
Exactly. Just for the audience's benefit, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on, Michael, is because you were one of the best facilitators of spaces that Bianca and I have ever seen. Oh. And one of the things that you, Bianca, and I have a passion for is nonprofit organizations and their sustainability, particularly those organizations that are minority-led. Yeah. We have been focusing recently and having some conversations here on the pod about dismantling white supremacy. And we wanted to get your thoughts on that, particularly as someone who's worked with a variety of organizations across the country and the globe. We find that organizations struggle with where to even begin to tackle such a thorny issue, particularly when the nonprofit is diverse in terms of, you know, it may be, uh, a bunch of minorities that are working there. It may be minority led, but there's a lot of non, there's a lot of white people also in the organization. Yeah. What comes to the top of your mind when I say dismantling white supremacy within nonprofit organizations that you think would be helpful for organizations that are that are starting that process now? Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the question. Um, my work focuses mostly on, you know, my work and my, my capacity building is focused on BIPOC organizations. So. BIPOC organizations led by uh, BIPOC folks for issues and areas of work that our community cares about. And it's, um, I think this is not a surprise to the three of us, but you know, white supremacy lives everywhere, even in organizations run by people for people of color that are either mostly mm -hmm. folks of color or, or, or um, so I say that because I think that First of all, in tackling white supremacy, it's so important to start that journey by making sure that everyone has a shared language and perspective and approach for what do we mean when we're talking about uh, dismantling white supremacy for our organization and and, and getting uh, to a place where we're we're talking about the same thing. Uh, but I also think that it requires um, an assessment: what are the experiences people are having here? with our culture, how's it impacting folks? And um, I think that white supremacy is connected to business as usual, right? Anytime, and, and also uh, it's connected to the way we do things around here deeply. And so no matter what organization you're in, your culture is mostly, I think, unconscious. And so bringing, starting the work on white, dismantling white supremacy is about taking a deep look at ourselves, the systems that we've built inside our organization and how it actually impacts folks who walk through the door or walk through the Zoom every day to be here. That is where you can start to gather the data about how does white supremacy show up, shape the experiences of people and, and harm people. And then the question becomes, what do we want to do about that? And what rises to the top? When you talk about, um, well, one, the fact that you work primarily with BIPOC-led organizations, um, but still you know, seeing those elements of, of white supremacy in those organizations, can you speak a little more to that? Because I think I didn't realize that until I didn't realize that until I realized that, if that if that makes sense. Because in my career, for the most part, I've I've worked in BIPOC-led organizations. However, um, and I think it wasn't until recently where I'm like, 
Mm, this is business as usual and why and is this safe for um is this is this safe for us yeah i think that um you know for uh, i'll talk about my own journey i my career has often found me being one of the few black people in large white spaces and so my, how I've learned to navigate those spaces means that I have adopted definitions of good work. I've assimilated and adopted definitions of good work, definitions of professionalism, definitions of good communication, um, what's important when it comes to getting results, what's important when it comes to work that are that are white white western ideals and so my own unconscious adaption assimilation into those systems that has allowed me to successfully navigate large white spaces have then traveled into the organization that i run and that i'm part of in ways that require what you're talking about bianca that we stop and go wait a minute What's the impact of definitions of good work, professionalism, what's important to our organization? And does it serve us? Does it serve me? Is there something more liberatory, more, more joyful, more authentic, connected to my life? The, the lessons of my ancestors that I want to access again. Yes. And I just say that because I think all of those, those definitions of, of professionalism and the way we communicate and, and how we do things, I don't even think we <clears throat> always realize just, just how deep-seated that is in, in white supremacy and how to again, do away with what doesn't serve us. But with that being said, how do we then um, prioritize or encourage more um, organizations, more communities to, to prioritize the minority leadership and, and minority leaders in... So let me back up, because I feel like I'm saying a lot. That's my rewind sound. Yeah, I love it. I, I heard recently, and I've been hearing, <laughs> I feel like um, a lot lately, community heals community. Uh, the community knows what they need in order to, to thrive, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. more conversations about putting resources into the hands of, of community leaders and community members in order to um, meet the needs um, for, for their folks. So. Um, with with that though, how do we prioritize and encourage folks mm -hmm. to move into these leadership positions? Because it can also be kind of a scary, messy place. Yeah, it sure can. You know, I think that I think that often the doorway to um, healing, self empowerment. Um, and more love for ourselves and for, for the people around us starts with dealing with our internalized depression. 
And I think, uh, I think that that's a doorway we could powerfully walk through in nonprofits run by BIPOC folks, because we know we're all carrying internalized depression, right? And, and that individually and collectively. So understanding how internalized depression has shaped my life and my leadership, you know, the feeling of, um, for me, it's a feeling like I'm not good enough or the feeling that I'm an imposter mm. or even the need to, uh, the unconscious ways in which I go into performing competence in a white Western model when I'm in mixed race spaces. Those are all doorways that if I can uh, start with a self-focus can lead to one, my conscious, moving to consciousness about how internalized oppression has shaped my life and my leadership, and then start to make conscious choices about what do I wanna let go of? What are the lessons of my ancestors that I can reclaim? And then to do that with the folks around me in, in my organization so that we become mirror, loving mirrors for each other and our own liberation. And I think that's a, that's a good place to start it was a good place to start in my meditation community where we were you know we're, we're together for our liberation so I think that that is often for BIPOC led and BIPOC organizations for BIPOC folks good place to start because we all walk through the doors with internalized depression that is often unexamined absolutely just even as you said that that could be a whole segment. And I say I write that down, a whole show on internalized <laughs> no, oppression because I don't think we I don't think we realize it. I, I or maybe we do or we have not named it and have haven't collectively begun to heal. But that's or, or we haven't or maybe we haven't had the courage to work on something that we know is there because we know that it is going to be a lift and you have to be ready for the lift even when you know the lift is coming. That's right. And, you know, I think for me, we're, I'm starting to work on a program for Black leadership, uh, a fellowship for Black leadership. You know, the diaspora, diasporic practices that we can share with each other are doorways to liberation. And I think the goal for me is to seek, find a more expansive Black identity where joy and healing and protection become the foundation for our leadership and you know, also becomes the source of how do we also grow our resistance to anti-black and anti-blackness? Like absolutely. And that comes by starting by with the question, what am I, what am I resisting? What is my own internalized anti-blackness? You know, how do I center my own humanity? Uh, and then use my the legacy of my ancestors and my lineage to imagine a new kind of, of Black leadership. Michael, I don't want to put you on the spot, but we do have a link tree as a part of our podcast. So if you can recommend a good book on that topic yep. right there, we can put it in our link tree and we can encourage people to buy sure it will. and read it. 
I wanted to switch gears and talk a little bit about Good Trouble. Um, I loved John Lewis. Um, and uh, when he passed, one of the things that kind of came to the forefront is his life's work in creating Good Trouble. I'm thinking about that um, lawmaker in Georgia who simply went and knocked on the governor's door. And that simple act became Good Trouble because the governor was signing a bill to take away voting rights for minority people. and Underneath people. the slave plantation picture. Yes, yes, in a room full of white men, but we let's not <laughs> my blood pressure's already high. Let's <laughs> let's keep it balanced today. Um Michael, when we encourage people to be disruptive within organizations, to change policies and to change people, I think maybe they don't know what we mean by that. They don't know quite what to do. Um, in the case, and I'm I'm gonna Google the name of the of the lawmaker because I, I really should know her name. For me, her simple act of knocking on that door was her way of being disruptive. And so I'm wondering what would your advice be for other minority leaders who are looking for ways to be disruptive to policies that are oppressive and with people who are who are advancing those sure. policies? I think that it starts with just, um, you know, our our day-to-day -day experiences and our feelings about them are such a powerful source of wisdom. And in organizations, it's let's let's start talking to the other people of color in our organization. What's your experience been? Because as soon as that conversation starts, there are going to be patterns of experience where we're we are experiencing harm, we're experiencing uh, our invisibility, we're experiencing the ways in which our voices are not heard and recognized as sources of expertise and in and in work and in 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 talking with others we can name the patterns of experience you know so often as a person of color if i go into to a leadership setting and say i'm having this experience it's often met with questions well i don't see it that way i don't think that's happening uh, ways of dismissing my own individual experience that happens a lot but when people of color and organizations come together and say, we're having this experience, this is the harm we're experiencing, that requires some sort of um, response. And it also creates more, um, the potential for more impact because it's not just me, but a whole range of experiences that are happening that need to be addressed. I looked it up. Her name is Representative Park Cannon, is the courageous um, lawmaker who who took a stand against a governor who is clearly in violation of his own state's constitution. Be your face. I know. <laughs> I'm glad you can see it because I just so many things that I, I too will not be raising my blood pressure today. But I do want to um, come back to something you just said, Michael, about this um, kind of collective, this collective response, this collective experience. Right. Um, just that reminder that we are stronger together. Right. Um, and one of the things I think one of my greatest takeaways from from the leadership training that Isaiah and I did with you, um, the peer coaching and just how important it was to have somebody to kind of connect with and talk to for accountability, for support, for mentorship. Um, 
and just how valuable that is to have somebody else who, again, this, this kind of collective understanding and, and support and encouragement. Tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on, on peer mentorship and that, that peer-to-peer support. Yeah, I, I think it's everything. I think that, you know, as people of color, when we find ourselves in mixed race institutions or in large white institutions, our, our ability to sustain ourselves is about supporting each other, our peers, so that we know I'm not crazy and my voice matters and that um, we can create, you know, I, I think that what I try to do in organizations that are, that have BIPOC folks in it that are trying to work on equity is to create a, invite them to create a space where BIPOC folks can be with each other as peers, supporting each other in navigating and, and uh, thriving in a system that is not yet ready to welcome them, to see them, to recognize them. And that while I'm here for now, I can experience more healing, joy, and liberation if I'm with my peers supporting each other. That's really important. And those ways of, you know, in your leadership program, that's what you were doing. You were coming together and saying, we're not crazy. We are having this experience. And what I see is accurate. And here's how we can support each other because that support for each other in settings that are not yet ready to see us in all of our power and wisdom lets us know that A, I have a choice. I can either stay here or I can get on up out of here to another place that will welcome me, my voice, my visibility, my power. And, and just knowing that there are other people on that journey with me can help sustain us, even in organizations that are not ready to see us, to hear us, to allow us to be in the fullness of our power. You have said um, a few times now, and I wrote it down, um, the words joy, healing, protection, and liberation. Yeah. And, I th- and so that's so powerful in terms of being rooted in our leadership, um, in what we want for, for ourselves and for our communities, um, and just how far that would take us. So I literally wrote those words down. So if that becomes another segment on this podcast, again, Michael Bell, when yes. we get some coin, I, we will, yes. <laughs> we another, will send you segment. My segment percentages. You know, <laughs> I, I, I actually think that that's, you know, that, that, that kind of focus on joy and, uh, liberation and healing is this is what you know my grandparents and parents grew up before integration in the in the south during the civil rights movement and they were living and loving and laughing because of their ways of of being and sustaining each other and those lessons come from them to remind us that we must find our joy and liberation and sustenance in the midst of a world that isn't ready to recognize our greatness. And so it is really on their shoulders that I think about those things and their lessons. And it's something that we've got to do in this lifetime. So well said, so well said. Uh, Michael, before we let you go, one thing that you and I share in common is our love of travel. I have booked my first post-COVID trip. I'm going to Maui in oh. August. I know you got something on the books. So where are you going? Let oh my us, gosh, I'm us. headed to Hawaii for 10 days with my extended family, where we're just oh going to heal. We're going on the Black Opulence tour. We're going we're gonna to party our way through the island of 
uh, Oahu, just really just a chance to be together in a in a beautiful space. I do want to make sure that you too know about and will be coming to the Global Com Conference on Blackness in South Africa in November 2022. I'll be extending invitations because it's yes. everything. Oh my gosh. And we could record live like from there. That's you can record live from Johannesburg and Cape Town. Yes. I am uh, here for it. Please send us the info on that. That sounds amazing. So I hope you have a great you're going, you're going to Hawaii soon. We'll be uh, in Hawaii for 10 days, uh, June 10th through 20th. Okay, that's great. Mm. I'm going in August. So have a great time. This is the year of Hawaii. I don't know why Bianca's not going. You know, because again, as we've talked about before, these kids and they cost and yeah. <laughs> we working on it though, tucking something aside for them. <laughs> Beautiful. Can I just tell you too how proud I am of you? You're just such a source of inspiration and light. This program is what we needed. And I thank the two of you for breathing life into something that's going to give us all so much joy. Thank you, Michael. You are so thank sweet. You. We love you. We really do. I mean, you don't know how excited and thrilled we are that you that you came on, that you made time for us to be a part of the podcast. We oh really, my God. You're one of our absolute faves. Faves. Absolutely love the both of you. Come back any, I'll be ready to come back anytime. Love it. Michael Bell, President, Chief Executive Officer, and Co-Founder of In Partnership Consulting Incorporated. We will drop his organization's link into the episode description. Thanks, Michael. There's a new season. website coming out next month. Yeah. Okay. So wait for the new link and I'll send you the book. <laughs> I love yes, all you. of the things. All right. Take care, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Bye, you too. Lots of love. I think that was, that conversation was excellent. And just a reminder, one of Michael's wisdom and his passion in, in what he does and why we consider him a mentor. Again, thank you, Michael Bell. So in all the fields, you know, we love the Olympics, <laughs> Isaiah and I, but does the Olympics love us? We're going to just kind of run down. So, so first of all, the Olympics haven't even started yet, right? So these are like... Olympic trials and just things that are already happening before the games have begun. And again, they begin um, July 23rd. And I was super, I have been hyped about the Olympics since, well, forever. But 2019, I was like already counting down for 2020. And then Rona was like, no, y'all ain't running nowhere except into your house. So it didn't happen. <laughs> And so here it is coming around again. I love the Summer Olympics, get super hype, but already just seeing, there have just been a list of, of stories and things in the news recently about the Olympics. And, I'm, and we're not even getting into, maybe not this episode, but the protests that are actually happening in Japan against the Olympics um, period, because there are um, citizens and people who live there, they're like, don't bring this here. Don't bring all these people in their germs. Like it is a mess. And the Olympics, just just the whole setup for like the host cities etc tends to be very problematic in the way that they they do things before the olympics and after the games so now that now that i am more woke <laughs> um 
it's just a lot of just just a lot just feeling conflicted sometimes with with the olympics but so we i don't think you should feel just... conflicted at all i think the olympics <laughs> the olympic spirit is still i think important yeah. i think sometimes the logistics of it is a mess mm. we should say this is not an olympic year these it's games not. were postponed by an entire year because of covid trash and so <laughs> um you know, we're going to get an Olympics and then in three years, another summer game. So we're going to get, they're going to be a little bit more condensed in the next three years, because I think next year in 2022 is the winter games. Exactly. And, <clears throat> and also the winter games, I don't really get into, to be very honest. I <laughs> Because they ain't got no bit. black people. They don't. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Let me be clear. My Jamaican bobsledders always come through. So I am proud of them. But I might you don't watch like the figure skating. That's what I was gonna. That's what I was okay. gonna say. Figure skating. I still remember just just all of the things and Oksana Bayul just literally turning flip, it. Yes, that backflip. I still that's living <laughs> rent free in my head for the past twenty years. It was everything. You know, what? I'm tweeting that out. <laughs> Oksana Bayul backflip. Yes. If you, don't, if you haven't seen that performance, you haven't lived. They were like, we don't know how to score this here. <laughs> We don't know what the hell she just did, which is also what Simone Biles is giving. Like, we don't even know, literally. I love Simone Biles. Same. I love her so much. She's so tiny and so cute and <laughs> so talented. Oh my goodness, yes. love her. But literally both of them, Simone Biles, Oksana Bayol, they're like, we don't know what the hell to do with this black girl witchcraft that y'all got <laughs> going on, um, fix it. And they're like, no. <laughs> Oh, literally. Um, but we're going to get into a little bit of the mess. <clears throat> so in preparation for this, I have just been tracking <laughs> the mess and just the things that are going on. So we are going to talk a little bit about these things. So Shakari Richardson and her suspension over that little bit of marijuana. Um, we are going to talk about the six, the cis black women, um, runners who are banned for having natural high levels of testosterone. So Christine Mamboma and Beatrice, Mas Ooh, I'm going to butcher this and I apologize, Beatrice Masilingi. We'll, we'll try that. Um, and we're going to bring up Semenya because I feel like that's when I first heard this. Uh, we're going to talk about the black swimmers and how they can't even wear swim caps made for their natural hair. Um, and the Olympics Tokyo say, nah, y'all ain't bringing that um, black folk <laughs> protesting or protesting in general over here. And I actually did a little research and realized that that has also been a standard, but I didn't think I realized that. So anyway, that's your rundown. We're going to get into the things. Let's start with Shakari. So when I watched her on her that interview on the Today Show, um, so she, for those who don't know, she is a, a sprinter. Girl is fast. She's what, 21, 22? Fairly young. But anywho, so she tested positive um, for marijuana, She, um, which she had ingested while she was in Oregon where it is legal <laughs> so let's let's start there um but she has been Here we go. <laughs> she, 
shows. She has been suspended um, for one month. I think originally it was supposed to be three months, but the suspension is 30 days, which will bring her back in time to do the four by 100 relay, but not the 100 meter, which is her event, which was kind of like that. um, Because I remember posting on Facebook, um, Shakari Richardson versus Shelly and uh, Pierce Frazier. Like, I cannot wait to see that their race. Um, but she won't. She won't be there in time for that. Initially, when they announced the suspension, I thought she might make both events because track and field is usually in week two of the Olympics. Mm-hmm. But I think that this year she's going to make one and not the other. I think that's how the schedule kind of falls. Mm. So thoughts. She you already been... know what I think about this. <laughs> and I told you, we need to do a whole episode on marijuana anyway. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually surprised that we don't agree on this one. So here's the thing. Um, marijuana should be legal. There's no question about that. We, I agree with that. We both agree with that. These laws are bullshit. And athletes are very accustomed to rules. They're very accustomed to regulating what goes into their body. She knew the rules beforehand. And when you're an athlete, you have to follow the rules. That is that is literally how sports work. We can't allow athletes to break the rules that govern the sports. It's as simple as that, Bianca, really. But this is, I could see if it were... You know, we talk about steroids, right? Hormones, things that would make, that would enhance her performance. Somebody, I've been seeing so many tweets and posts that just make me tickle. Like weed has never made anybody run fast, (laughs) which is a fact because I know it slows my ass down. (laughs) Ready to nap. And also just how, um, if I'm not mistaken, how some of the sports have also been letting up on the amount of THC that can be in your system um, in order to, but yeah, the amount of THC that that can be in your system, et cetera. And you're right, like, yes, rules are rules. So, so much has come up, like she um, smoking to also cope with the passing of her mother. Like we cannot... Uh, we cannot rule out the fact that that did occur literally a week before she had run this incredible race that had kind of put her at the forefront of of her sport and her events. Um, so there's a lot of things, I don't know, there's a lot of things in play and I just don't, I don't know, I, it's the double standards of it all, everything. What are the double standards? There was, so they were talking about, um, so Michael Phelps, right? So when Michael Phelps, well, Michael Phelps had also lost some sponsorships and things when he had pictures of himself um, with, I don't know, what do you have, like a bong? Something in his- Yeah, someone leaked a video of him, of of a recording of him getting high, I think was what it was. Um, But I think the key difference was, Bianca, this was during the off season. He was not- Um, It wasn't during the competition or in the lead up to the competition. And he never had a positive um, test result, if I'm not mistaken. So I think those were the key differences. And I think he was, um, let me go back and look, Um, because he did lose some sponsorships. I do appreciate the fact that Nike is still like, nah, Shakari, we're standing with you and are continuing to be um, her sponsor. I think what just, I don't know. And I think there's a lot of, athletes that are also in a a variety of different sports that are coming to her defense. I think it was 
LeBron James maybe that had kind of tweeted out like the same people that are banning it also have stock in THC or are part of THC companies of course right so when like just also why I hear what you're saying like yes the rules are rules because I feel like we kind of had this with um Naomi Osaka and the whole Mm -hmm. (laughs) press Mm -hmm. thing and she says I am playing for Japan so f y'all anyway but neither here nor there (laughs) but I, I get that I just feel like it's I don't know so what I appreciate about Miss Richardson is that she she owned up to it she's like I fucked up I did a bad thing. I knew what the rules were and I'm going to have to suffer the consequences. And I apologize for making a poor choice. And I actually like her even more because she owned up to it. She in no way tried to like not take responsibility for her actions. And I think she should be given more credit for that because so many times we see athletes break the rules, do something they know they're not supposed to do. And then they try to like pussyfoot themselves out of it. And she was like, no, 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 no. I acknowledge I did it. I acknowledge that it was wrong and I I own that. And so I I like her even more because she took responsibility for her actions. And that's what strong black women agreed. Um, Have you seen the tweets that they are digging up now? (laughs) You know what? I did not know about these. And I, you know, this is going to be up my alley. So what did she say? When did she say it? And do I need to alter what I just said about her? (laughs) The Wayback Machine said... And pulled up, pulled up her receipts from five years. So I think one was like from five years ago and another one might have been a little more recent um, where she was talking shit about Lil Nas X. Um, She was, she said something. So five years ago uh, related to um, guys who were pink are gay as fuck and should die. Like, that and so then people are like <laughs> also talking about how problematic it is for lesbians to be homophobic because she clearly is part of the alphabet mafia but they not but people are it's it's interesting how because again here we are where you know we are rooting for her and then people are like nah I don't I don't use this because of the way of the things that she has put out in the past which also is that reminder that anything you put out there anything you tweet anything you post literally lives forever and she was a teenager she recanted this what was what was her response to I haven't to this because I, I haven't, haven't seen, seen any responses to this yeah. So again, when you're, we all say things that we can, that we wish we had either not said or said differently, particularly when we were younger. If you go back, Bianca, and, and confront me with some of the shit I said when I was 19 and 20, I would probably be very, very embarrassed. So that's not really the issue. The issue is when confronted with her words, what was her response to that? And what is her worldview and has it evolved around gay people? And I think that um, that would be where I would be most concerned with her. You know, people say homophobic things all the time, including gay people. And so whatever. But the question is, has her worldview evolved? Is she on a pathway to being a little bit more understanding of other people and a little bit more empathetic of other people? And I think that those are the things that I would look for in, in someone in her position. I think the, um, and, and I would have to go back and fact check also, but I think the Lil Nas X tweets are a little bit more recent because Lil Nas X is a little bit more recent. 
Um, but but you're right. I, I I haven't yet seen. And so for our listeners, if you want to slide something in our inbox to to help us to fact check, uh, we invite you to do that as well. Um, anything that she has said in response to those tweets, but they are out in a flurry, and people are like, no. And and it is also um, from what I have seen um is is it's a it's this mixture when it comes to to black people it's black queer people who are like nah we're not we're not we're not using her we're not supporting her um and then on the on the flip side it's also black people who are who are standing strong um in support of her being able to to run and just um i think this is also yes the rules are rules and this is a sport but then it's that underlying um just conversation about marijuana, about how how Black people are wrongfully incarcerated or incarcerated for these ridiculous amounts of times when it comes to weed usage, selling, et cetera, um, while Billy and Kyle and them just get to <laughs> make uh, money and profit. But again, we're going to have to have a whole conversation about that there. Let's move on. Um, so... Let's talk a little bit about um, these women who are banned uh, from running in their sports and specifically what I have seen is track and field um, for their high levels of testosterone because what the um, Olympic Federation, what they're saying is you cannot um, run because you have too much testosterone in your body. These women naturally, mind you, um, have too much testosterone. So you cannot take part in these particular, um, these particular events, unless you take hormones to, uh, to reduce. (laughs) Unless you take a drug to alter your natural state. (laughs) (laughs) Funny how this works. So it is just, um, once again, just one telling, um, telling women, telling people what to do with their body. But at the same time, you cannot, unless you, like you just said, put drugs in your system to alter who you genetically are. Well, this for me, Bianca gets back to this this genderism that we have in sports in general. And I hope I'm using that term correctly. And I don't know that I am. This whole idea that the that the that the boys play against the boys and the mm. girls play against the girls and the two are never too mixed. And you know, as someone who is into football, we've had this come up, you know, a few times in the NFL where there's some women kickers and they're like, you know, why can't we be in the NFL and play and play football? And then we have to go through this discussion around is that appropriate and blah, blah, blah. And to me, this kind of gets back to that because clearly what they're saying is that they, they, they deem a level of testosterone for women to be X. Mm-hmm. And because you are not X, you are somehow, um, that's not okay. And so to me, a woman is a woman is a woman. And so whatever she naturally brings to the table or to the field or to the pool, whatever, whatever, wherever our sport is going to be contested, then then she's good with me. The idea that you can tell her that she's, you know, got too much of this or not enough of that. What the fuck is that? Now that gets back to this idea that women can be strong, but not too strong. Mm. 
and men can be weak, but not too weak. <laughs> and so, you know, that I don't like because to me, it feeds into this idea of there only being two genders and you have to fit neatly into this box. And if you don't fit neatly into the box, we're going to give you, we're going to inject you with something so that you can. That is some bullshit right there. And I think, you know, you come to the field with how you come to the field. It's, it's a, if this is how you naturally are built and if this is what your creator and the universe gave to you, then that's what you got. And I don't think that, and I think that that is good enough. And I don't think we should be telling anybody, but particularly women of color that, uh, oh, we need to change you in some way so that you can comport with our rules. Fuck that. Fuck all of that. <laughs> Throw it away. <laughs> no, literally. And, and it, it's, goes back to so so this first so the first time I had like kind of heard of this is when um uh Caster Semenya so a South African runner um oh my god oh my god the stigma that yes they, but anyway I'm no nope. I didn't mean to interrupt go ahead <laughs> um so so right so she was going to court or they were taking her to court etc on her levels of testosterone I remember just again, um, I, I, re I clearly remember, because if I'm not mistaken, she was also finding out things. I think that that's when she had come out as intersex as well when all there of was, was and like, there was so many mean-spirited things about how she was yes. secretly a man and she was gonna have to prove her womanhood. And I'm like, you know what? I was I could feel my blood pressure rising. I was mm -hmm. so mad. I'm like, this is this whole conversation is not okay. <laughs> Literally. And it's just interesting where it's like you, what they're saying is how they have these horn, these testosterone levels for this to this. So it's like for the 400 meter to the 1600 meter, your testosterone has to be <laughs> within these levels, or this is the criteria. If not, if you exceed that, then you cannot run in those, <laughs> within those particular mileages events there we go um and so you either have to change so you have to go below or higher and I think Semenya was the 800 meter if I'm not mistaken and mm -hmm. um and they they told her she can't run and even now she she can't but it goes back to my previous comment. We don't have a system that's ready or prepared to deal with someone who doesn't fit neatly into mm. quote unquote male mm. and female. And so when an intersex person or when, so, when anyone that has a gender other than male or female, it throws them completely out of whack because they don't know how to deal with that. They don't have a, they don't have any mechanism in place to address the fact that honestly, there's more than two genders. And so that's, mm -hmm. that's the problem that they're trying to deal with, that they're not dealing with in any sort of real way. Exactly. Except here, go ahead, take these hormones. <laughs> that, and if anybody has ever been on birth control, shit. That Just don't, e don't even enter. <laughs> that, those hormones can mess your whole system up. So can we get into the, the, the caps? Because I had not heard of this until you pointed out to me is this really a rule that they can't wear I mean what the hell because so okay it and it came out because then I was you know digging looking um and my internet is acting trash and I want to pull up this story so I can get it right again ladies and gentlemen I am struggling today <laughs> but here we are so um soul cap 
soul cap yeah is the um is the black owned swim cap brand got it um they are out of they're out of the uk if i'm not mistaken and actually one of their um one of their spokes um their spokeswomen is alice deering and so she is competing in tokyo as the first black female swimmer of the great britain team she has sister has a beautiful fro okay um that she uses their swim cap um to protect her hair because it fits because again black women in our hair is not necessarily going to fit into them tiny ass speedo caps okay okay i'll go ahead (laughs) i'm gonna just have so many questions but i'm trying to hold them (laughs) and they are rejecting they're rejecting um the international swimming federation is rejecting it as they say for not fitting the natural form of the head. So I think these ladies should be able to wear what the fuck they want to wear, but that's, let's set that aside for a second. Why can't Speedo just make a bigger skull cap for them to fit their locks or whatever type of hair they have? I don't, that's the part I don't understand. That is a very, and because mm-hmm. I mean, Speedo doesn't make Speedos in one size. I mean, those come in multiple <laughs> sizes. So why can't the caps come in multiple? I mean, that they, they must make multiple sizes, Bianca. That just doesn't make any sense. But are they making multiple sizes that again are, are going to be big enough? I, I, that was my question. I don't know the to, answer, but I don't yeah. know why they couldn't. I guess that's what I'm saying. Um, so that's just weird. So then that's one thing. And the other thing is, okay, so if these athletes have found something that works for them, so long as it doesn't give them an advantage, who the hell cares? Really? Exactly. Just <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about that. As long as it doesn't give them an advantage. And so I don't even understand why. Because I know, so when I... <laughs> When I, when my locks were very long, so so prior to me cutting off my hair three years ago, I used to have lock, locks that were down to like my mid back. And when they would get wet, them shits were heavy. <laughs> okay. And I struggled to find even a shower cap that I could get all of my hair into. So also just shout out to these black swimmers who are like, I'm going to rock my natural hair and finally find something that works for me. And Soul Cap is creating something that can, one, keep my hair from getting damaged because I would assume all of that chlorine, all of that swimming is just getting their tangles in a bunch anyway. <laughs> getting their tangles in a bunch anyway. Um, but here is something that is working uh, for Black women, for their hair type. And the swimming folks are like, no, no, it must naturally fit your head, which again means if you do not have that, I don't know, straight, thin European hair or whatever, that's going to slick to your head that you could slap that little Speedo cap on, that these here, um, (sighs) these here swim meets are not for you, which is very unfortunate because we have been eager to see more um, Black folks in swimming. Um, And every time they get to this Olympic level, like we are cheering them on and we are super proud. And here's just yet another barrier um, that the Olympics is putting in in the way. But does Speedo make a cap? 
Um, you know, I would look up Speedo. Speedo for black girls. <laughs> what would I Speedo for black women's hair? I think I'm gonna try that. Does Speedo? I'm gonna I'm literally Googling. Does Speedo make a swim cap? Because <laughs> this is I wanna know. Because I because Bianca, they must. I mean they must. Cap to fit <laughs> natural hair. <laughs> Because also they, um, you know what? It's interesting because as soon as I uh, typed that in, soul cap was the first thing that came up because honey, these soul cap has the market and they are doing the damn thing. Now Um, I hope, I hope you or the listeners don't find this offensive, but I'm going to, I'm going to take it a step further. mm. You know, speedos are made for some thinny, skinny white people. These ladies have figures. (laughs) So they must, how they covering those curves. (laughs) They must have a bigger speedo for that. They're not going to fit in those little tiny things. They got curves in here. <laughs> right. So we're talking literally from head to toe, from top to bottom is speedo for us. But it'll say like speedo long hair swim cap. But again, the images are still of people of European descent, which their long hair is different. <laughs> Than our long hair. Cheeto, get get your act together. Get it together. (laughs) So we'll see how that goes. But moving um, right along, because as I mentioned, when, you know, Black folks are literally making waves when it comes to this here swimming. And I feel like they just, whatever opportunities are hold us back. Um, And then lastly, the protesting. Um, So, the Olympics, they bar they bar any type of protesting um, on stage. Any clothing bearing phrases like "Black Lives Matter," kneeling, or raising of the fists, all violate the rules. Um, so I did not know. Again, one thing I like about this, <laughs> one thing I like about this podcast is the fact that it makes me do more research. So um, those 1968 Olympics, that iconic image of mm-hmm. John Carlos <clears throat> and Tommy Smith in their black gloves, fisted, race fisted, all of that on the metal podium is such a, um, is such an iconic image. Um, but I didn't realize that they were then disciplined for that and sent home. So yes, yes they were. Uh, yeah, and so that just goes to show. So, and I can I can see. So some of the things I was reading was just kind of like the Olympics are supposed to be kind of that neutral territory, right? And so that's why there isn't like it's the spirit of the games. Yes. And these I even games. mentioned the spirit of the Olympic spirit early because that's the whole point of it, Bianca. Exactly, them coming together and us kumbayaing and pretending like the world is not shitastic. I get it. Um, And so, but it just being very clear, even more so, I think when we are seeing a lot of athletes using their, um, using their, their publicity, their, their recognition, et cetera, in order to bring awareness to the things that are, that are happening and that are specifically impacting um, black and brown people. Uh, We've been seeing that NFL and basketball, um, Naomi Osaka, her masks that she was wearing to the meets with um, different names of people who have been slain. So um, yeah, and the Olympics said, no, that's, y'all not bringing that here. 
I am torn about this, Bianca, because I I believe in protests. I think that that's what is at the heart of Americanism. You know that I'm a very patriotic person and I, I embrace all of that because at the heart of what it means to be an American is, is to say how you feel about our government and our flag and to be able to protest and be a part of a better America. So I'm fully on board with you know, re, um, addressing your grievances to the government um, and to anyone who wants to listen. That's that's what being an American is. And <laughs> the Olympics is about a competition between the nations. You don't go to represent yourself. You go to represent your country. You win the medal, not for yourself, but for your country. And so now we have some ideals that are in conflict. If you're unwilling to stand for your national anthem, if you're unwilling to really be under the banner of your flag, then you probably shouldn't be at the Olympics because that's what the Olympics is. You can still be an athlete outside of that space. You, can, you don't have to be at the Olympics to be an athlete. But going to the Olympics literally means, by definition, if you're an Olympian, mm -hmm. it by definition means that you are under the banner of your country proudly and you're competing on behalf of your country proudly. That's kind of what it is. So now we have a conflict between the purpose of the Olympics and kind of like each person's individual right as citizens mm. to have a statement. And I just don't know that we're gonna be able to get around that, those two things, because they really are in conflict. Very good point. Very good point, because I know, you know, when I hear the national anthem, it makes my big toe itch. So <laughs> we need to do an episode on on no. why we'll we'll get into that at some point. Like, <laughs> you know what? We don't have to. We don't. We're gonna just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I get. It. So is this? Um, so Naomi Osaka playing for Japan. Mm hmm. The land of the rising sun. Indeed. What was, so, and again, I know you follow the tennis world far more than I do. What was her reasoning? Do you know? Yes. In Japan, Naomi Osaka is something akin to, I, I don't know, Flojo. Like, like she is, she, everyone knows who she is. She is a bigger than life figure. It would be a, it would be a, a monumental letdown to them if she did not compete on their behalf in the Olympic games. Like it's, it's just, it's like Muhammad Ali for us. Like she, like the the sense of obligation is is so big that there's she didn't even consider not doing the Olympics because she knows how much it means to the to the Japanese people. Good point. Yeah, and I think because she has been kind of um, her her protests has been very visible, and um, in, in how she chooses to take a take a stand on things. Um, that alone, I think, can for me would conflict with whew, this here flag and that their anthem. Now, to be fair, we should say we're recording this a few weeks ahead of the the start of the games. Mm -hmm. She could change her mind, Bianca. She has changed her mind and pulled out of tournaments, you know, just a few days before. So mm. maybe we'll see how she's feeling when the Olympics are about to start. But as of right now, um, she is scheduled to to compete in the games of Tokyo. And I oh, and that's the other thing. Mm -hmm. The games are in her country. That makes and sense. so that's that's that changes everything really. That is very mm. and the next Olympics are gonna be in LA, if I'm not mistaken. Look, look at you. Oh my god, we should go and have a Warden Webster <laughs> two weeks of Warden Webster at the at the games of Los Angeles. <laughs> oh my god, that would be so much. 
much. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We are. But then again, conflicted because we also know <laughs> that the Olympics come in and literally displace people and leave you, leave you with a bunch of debt and a bunch of buildings you can't use. Yes. Have you ever seen, there is like a whole um, like exhibit or a gallery of <laughs> like Olympic stadiums and things that were built and things that are put up and like what happens, the Olympic villages, et cetera. And then like after the Olympics, what happens to them? They are just, they are not used in any way that makes sense. Like they're not used to then hold, house homeless people. Like they're just not, they, these images are heartbreaking. So to me, there's two solutions. We could just put the Olympics on rotation in cities that already have the infrastructure to do it. Like we don't have to keep building new infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Like if you already have the infrastructure, you can just be on the, on the, on the cycle. And I think the second thing is, why can't we use some of the stadiums and some of the housing that already exists? Like make the shit work, like make it work. <laughs> Literally. Um, and they had, and again, we'll talk and get into these things, but there was a whole episode on Vox about the Summer Olympics and just everything that is happening, um, the ways that it, it helps boost the economies of, of these cities, which just ways that they are extremely problematic um, when they kind of come in and again, like literally bust homeless people away and just, it's just really crazy. Um, all that to say... I'm still going to be watching. <laughs> and are, are we still going to do our Olympic episode um, later when the games arrive? Yes. Okay. Yes. Ah. I just wanted to make sure because I'm down. <laughs> All of that to say, um, we want the Olympics to get their shit together, <laughs> to be better in some areas. And then because Isaiah is all about the rules and things, maybe he just wants athletes and people to get their shit together. I don't know. But either way, <laughs> stay tuned because we are going to be digging into the Olympics that start July 23rd. And either way, I'm just rooting for Jamaica to be clear. But um, moving right along. So in this week's Gotta Do, we are encouraging folks to read and specifically to support your local library because I, I am all for that. Yes, libraries are so key and essential to neighborhoods and communities. And I have all kinds of feelings about that, but I, I really love libraries. But um, this summer... We want folks to read not just, of course, the Ward and Webster Book Club, which we'll get into a little bit later, um, which is because reading is fundamental. So we want you to we want you to read something. Also, summer. Do you remember your? Did you ever do summer reading lists when you were in elementary school? Or no. School? What? I spent my <laughs> summers playing with the boys in the neighborhood, but that's for another show. <laughs> of course, you did. I was that nerd. Let me not say nerd. I was that avid reader that when that summer book list came out, like right before the end of the school year, oh, I was hyped and I wanted to go get all of the books and read. you could not find me without a book. I love. I mean, I don't, I don't really, I, I don't even agree with the concept of summer reading Why? list because you go to school for the whole year. The summer is what you can do, whatever you want to do. Now, if reading is your thing and that's that's what oh. you do to decompress, fine, whatever. But I think you should just do whatever you want to do in the summer, not focus on, you You learn all through the rest of the year. You can have two but months so to much, do nothing and They do say so else. much reading and math is lost in the summertime because you just stop doing it. Kids just stop no, doing no, it. No, that's just what educators say to keep the pressure on. That's not actually true. That is true. <laughs> 
Look, I got these kids here and I know that when the fall comes, it is confusion. One plus one equals 20X over here. So it is like- I just, I just feel like getting, letting them play, go to summer camp to build those interpersonal communication skills. And that's equally as important as it is reading a book. So I think we, you know, that's just, that's just my view. I am trying to encourage both. <laughs> we can do both because I, because if not, I, I'm telling you one, my son will sit on the couch and watch YouTube gamers all damn day and get on my nerves and he need to read a book. Now that I don't think is good. He needs to be outside getting some exercise, some fresh air, some, so I think he should be active. I don't think he should be in front of a TV or a computer screen. That's not what I'm advocating for. No, 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 I don't do that. One day we're going to talk about your, no, 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 no. It's hilarious. Anyway, <laughs> getting back to, getting back to reading. I was the summer reader. Um, clearly Isaiah was not. So <laughs> this is, um, so again, I've said it multiple times. I only listen. I love audiobooks. Like I want to be I want to be read to. I like different voices. I And it all started because I used to have a fairly long commute. And this was over probably like 12 years ago. And so I was like, hmm, what? You know, let me go to the library. And I got a new library card and started to get audiobooks and would just listen. And with audiobooks, I am able to, I probably average a book every probably about 10 days. So I'm getting a lot of books in. I absolutely love it. Um, but because I always do audio, I never participated in book club books because I'm like, I feel like I can't participate because I don't have a book, <laughs> but I do. So when you came up with this idea of the book club, I was like, this is literally my first book club, I kind of feel like a grown up. Were you in book clubs before? Since again, you didn't do no summer reading. I wasn't, <laughs> but I always wanted to be. And so I took this as an opportunity to do something that was kind of like on the bucket list. But um, similar to you, you know, the reading that I did was just kind of for mm -hmm. myself. I never really did it in, in collaboration with others. But when you're reading something with someone else, it really is a different experience because you get to go on the journey with them in real time. So I've been, I've been loving our book club because I get to do that. And then we have people reading with us and they're texting us and they're like asking us questions and that's fun too. Um, so yeah, but I, but I never did one before the one we the same. The same. I think, you know what? I take that back. I did. I had one at a previous job and I will never forget. We had started reading um, Water for Elephants and I had the book and this is before like I was really into audio. Um, and I also struggled with book clubs because I couldn't keep up. <laughs> like they would like read the first two chapters in this week. And I'm like, I can't, I, I, I just I can't or, or whatever the case may be. And then I stopped going. But then later I listened to Water for Elephants on audio and loved it and wish I would have taken part. So I am also going to advocate for an audio book book club. Hmm. Um, so anyway, we're encouraging folks to read. I believe in libraries. I love the amount of money and support that are going into libraries right now because they really um, are the heart for a lot of communities. So if you have a library card, go ahead and use that. Go check out a book or they have all of the apps now for your local libraries. Um, and again, your tax money is going to them anyway. So you might as well use them. 
I'm just saying. Uh, what do you think folks should read? What are three books uh, on your list that you think everyone should read? I have four. <laughs> of course you do. So how are we, we're going to do these alternately? Or you want me to give you all four of mine? Or how are we doing Let's that? Let's alternate. Because I don't have any specific, like, this is the nonfiction they should read. Or I don't know. Just, yeah. So let's start with one of my fun ones. Um, <laughs> the Joy of Gay Sex by Charles Silverstein. So let me explain to you, because I saw the look on your face when I said that. So this book has been out since I think the 70s. They've done several iterations of it. They may be on like the third or fourth edition by now. So when I was growing up, Bianca, I did not learn about, you know, the biology and physiology and, and the, the inter in the in uh, eccentricities of quote unquote gay sex until I was, you know, in my teenage. So I was looking for things that I could read that would be that would make sense to me so that I could understand the feelings that I was having. This book is it's really not, it's not smut. It's, it's written as kind of like a, this is what this is. This is almost like a how-to. This is, this is a, this is how you, this is how gay folks can approach sex. And it really walks you through everything from practicing safe sex to preparing to have sex to S and M to all the different forms of things. Like it was, it was educational in every sense of the word. And so it's one of the books that I have on my bookshelf to this day that I'd love to go back through and read because it was such an eye-opening experience. I remember when I first read it, I was in college and I was thinking to myself, wow, this is so informative that I wish I had read this as I was before I had my sexual debut because I it would have those experiences would have been would have been better because I didn't have anyone to really talk to me about these things even if my parents would have wanted to talk to me about it they didn't have a baseline information they knew how sex went because obviously they had, had sex but I mean they couldn't talk about uh, the feelings that I was having, how they would manifest themselves with another boy, et cetera, et cetera. The Joy of Gay Sex by Charles Silverstein is a great book. It is not raunchy in the least. It is really educational. Um, and I think, I think it's a great book for any non-heterosexual <laughs> non person to have in their collection. I cannot wait for us to do this sex episode because I feel like... <laughs> oh, it's coming. It's coming. It might be coming this summer. Izzy is hot. <laughs> and now is the time. And I hope we get to reference that book again. I, I just, oh, Isaiah. Um, my first is Homegoing um, by Yag Yassi. So you know how there's some books that you read and, and it's actually fairly recent. So 2016, um, some books that you read and when you're done, it's so much that you're like, it's one, it stays with you. So it kind of follows this um, this path of, of these two sisters through eight generations. So starting in Black women, starting in Africa, um, the Gold Coast, right? So just their parallel lives, one being enslaved and the other one not. And just so it literally takes you through eight generations of their lives, all the way through like plantations in Mississippi to, um, I can't remember what city it ends in, but just, whew, even as I think about it, it is, it's so deep. It's so intense. It's, it's about lineage. It's about family. It is about, um, the, the impacts of, of slavery, um, from then to now it is, it's a novel, but it is so beautifully written. Um, 
that I would recommend anyone read it. And so when I was, I remember when I was reading it um, and I had posted about like this, like this book, like I can't get this book out of my head. I feel like that was kind of the sentiment for a lot of people in terms of just something that stays with you. Um, Homegoing for sure is, is one of that book. When we think about, uh, when we think about our ancestors, when we think about um, even just our parents, our grandparents and everything that they may have endured to get us to this point, it's, it's so powerful. And I think that this, this particular book paints a really uh, beautiful and intricate picture of what that looks like in terms of, and even just the, the difference between um, those who were enslaved, what that lineage looked like versus those who weren't. So mm-hmm. homegoing, check it out. That's a great choice. So my next one is going to be one that's familiar to most of our listeners, because I think our listeners are in a certain age bracket. Alice Walker's The Mm. Color Purple. Now, as great as the movie is, and it is great, the book, oh my God, the book (laughs) is so much better. Mm -hmm. Her decision to have it be narrated by Seeley through letters to God. Mm. (laughs) Just. Bianca, it touches, I mean, it's just, it's, perfect is not even a strong enough word it this the way that she conceptualizes the story and the way that she chooses to tell it could not have been more powerful to a black southerner who grew up in the church because Mm. I was like I got it my family got it it was relatable we could all enjoy it it was amazing she the 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 lesbianism of the book that was kind of glossed over in the movie and my mom my mom saw the movie and didn't see the book and she's like well I don't understand that part I'm like girl what do you mean I don't understand they're lesbians (laughs) what are you talking about they showed that one kiss and we were like wait a minute (laughs) so much was left out but the point is it's just it's a beautiful gift from Alice Walker to the rest of us and it endures. And so if you're a little bit younger and you haven't experienced Alice Walker's The Color Purple, you may have seen the movie or heard of the movie, watch the movie, but read the book um, and share it with everyone, especially with um, little girls. It is a great, great book. I mean, I think I, I consider it a classic. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it, but yes. if we're putting together a list of books, that one has to be on my list of all-time greats. I love, and it's, it's, it's funny because I didn't read that book. So that has always been one of my favorite movies. One of those movies that you can quote, right? Like just all the way through. Um, but I didn't read the book until I became an adult. And so um, I love the way it's written, the letters. It, it reminded me because I had read um, Push by Sapphire um, in high school. And in that, in that book, Precious is, is kind of writing and you kind of see her journey is, you know, once she starts to learn how to read, et cetera. Um, a very good book. The sequel, The Kid, no. But anyway, <laughs> um, when I, uh, yeah, when I read The Color Purple and I was like, wait a minute, I love this Suge and Seeley relationship. They were not, they were, they did not do that justice, but excellent choice Isaiah why thank you Bianca I love how you're so surprised by the way (laughs) so the movie came out in 1986 I don't think that they I don't think they felt like they could get away with doing that justice and so they just decided to cut to cut it because could they have gotten away with that in 1986 in a major film I don't Mm, know Steven Spielberg at that 
Right. So it's mm. like he was, I think he was, he was trying to tiptoe anyway, because I mm -hmm. think he knew, look, I'm a white man making this story. So I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be accused of leaving it out. But at the same time, I can't really put it in because, you know, it's the fucking eighties and people are going to be all up in their feelings about, you know, gay folks. Ve Ooh, very good point. Do you think that should be remade? Okay. No, that's another, we will. <laughs> No, because you know how I feel about remakes. We, they make a, they remake a lot of shit and then they fuck it up. Leave the color purple alone. It's a classic. It doesn't need to be remade. I never saw it on Broadway. I heard the the Broadway <sighs> adaptation. I was saw beautiful. it on Broadway with um. What, I'm seeing her face. I can't remember her name. What was what was the girl's name from American Idol? Fantasia. Fantasia. I saw it mm. on Broadway with Fantasia. <sighs> really? I may have cried. <laughs> You it have tear ducts? I couldn't believe it. I didn't know where it came from. Her voice, she was mm -hmm. so, she embodied the character so well. Her voice was angelic almost. The music, the way that it was written was so powerful. It was just a combination of things. Whatever Oprah Winfrey touches just <laughs> sends the turn to gold. That was one of those things. Agreed. Agreed. Um, my next one is one that I say you have to listen to. You cannot read it. It is not the same. Okay. You now you didn't read it, so you don't know the difference. But anyway, go on. You have to. So um, Trevor Noah, Born a Crime. Okay. So, so. Ugh. Oh, I can, now I get it. Because him telling the yes. story is probably going to be the powerful it part of It is so amazing um, for a variety of reasons. So it is one of those books where you laugh, you cry, where he talks about um, literally being born a crime because his father was white and his, his mother was black growing up in South Africa during apartheid, all of that. So um, just, just the complexities, right? But to hear him tell the story of his life, um, all of the languages that he speaks and the accents that that he speaks and does in the book, like you have to listen to it, like you have to hear him. I couldn't imagine, um, I couldn't imagine reading it and getting the same effect. He is brilliant. I love Trevor Noah. Anyway, his standup is hilarious. But just to hear him tell the story, his mother, man, his mother and her resilience. And I think that this is going to become a movie also. Um, because mm -hmm. it really is a powerful story, but I, it was one of those where I would, I was listening to it in the car and I would just sit in my driveway <laughs> and finish chapter after chapter. Like I couldn't go into the house. It is really powerful. If you have not read, um, Trevor Noah, Born a Crime, add that to your list. Don't, don't read it. Don't, don't pick up the book and think it's going to be the same. Listen, get your, your audible, your download, whatever you need to get into that. What you got next? All right. So my next one is one we've talked about before. It's Invisible Life by Elin Harris. Mm. It was one of the first books that I ever read in this genre. Um, obviously, Elin Harris was um, a Black gay man. He talks about, this book is about, a, it's a coming of age tale um, where he intertwines both um, themes about growing up gay with HIV. It was like, it was like the template of my life. Um, and so it was very... It was one of those books I read, I think, in high school, and it's it put me on a really good path. It was it was a it was a centering book again. 
I didn't get a lot of this sort of reinforcement from my family. And so I turned to books, I turned to movies, I turned to magazines. And this was one of the books that I turned to. And I'm so glad I discovered him as an author. A lot of his work, I mean, this is just one book. I mean, he had quite a few good books. Um, but Invisible Life, I think is a must, I would say it is a must read for, um, for Black folks, definitely for Black queer folks. I know you're a fan of Elin Harris, so forgive me for putting you on the spot. What is your favorite Elin Harris book? Because Invisible Life is mine, but there's there's quite a few good ones. He had, I would, I would also say Invisible Life because that was the introduction. Like, um, what's the other one? Uh, when the Wind Blows, I think was part of that because Invisible Life started it, but then it became a series. Yeah, of I'm gonna books. look it up. Um, so I will definitely say Invisible Life first because it was the first time that I had read um, a story or a book that censored Black gay characters in such a powerful way. Um, and then that got me hooked to Elon Harris, which I read, I think I read his first, I remember reading his first two books and then mm -hmm. I took a pause and then audio brought me back to the rest of them. <laughs> yeah. So it was, was, it was a trilogy. So mm -hmm. book one was Invisible Life. Book two was Just As I Am, mm -hmm. and book three was Abide With Me. But he had... It might I think the book you're thinking about was outside of the trilogy. I think so too. You're, you're right. But I did. I did love that whole trilogy. But Invisible Life definitely kicked it off. Mm, good one. Oh, Elon Harris. What a gift. Mm -hmm. What a gift. Um, my next book, also um, Black and Queer and Gift, uh, is um, Patsy by Nicole Dennis-Ben. So Nicole Dennis-Ben is a, she is a, a queer Jamaican author. And so I know that, that's like, sorry, Grace. You uh, weave Jamaican into every episode I of this podcast. I do, and let me tell you why. Because <laughs> as we talked about in the episode with Kenya Hutton, um, there is more visibility and I don't even, I don't know if acceptance is the word, but more visibility for um, queer Jamaicans. And so that has been a long time coming. Um, so any opportunity where they are at the forefront and, and getting the, the notoriety and the publicity and um, just the acknowledgement is, is really huge because we also know in Jamaica, it, it's, it's very dangerous to be, to be queer, right? So Nicole dennis Ben. And so she, um, her first book, I believe, was Here Comes the Sun, which was really amazing as well. But she writes, so in Patsy, um, and I think this book in particular is very powerful because I can see my own ancestors story in it because it is about this Jamaican woman who has a daughter but she leaves Jamaica to go to the states um, to work in order to send money home and eventually have her daughter come and so I'm like that was that was my grandmother's story that was my mother's story you know coming thinking you know it was going to be one way especially coming to New York because I feel like all Jamaicans come to New York but um, but it is also this, um, you know, her Patsy is, is a queer woman who doesn't necessarily, isn't able to kind of own her identity and who she is and what that looks like until she is in New York. Um, but parallel, her daughter in Jamaica is kind of having a similar experience. So then you see this, this generational, 
um, just queer coming of age stories, if you will, for both of these women. Um, but it also shows the dynamics, just the complex dynamics of their own mother-daughter relationship. It was so well written. And I remember when I when I listened to it, <laughs> um, I yeah, I thought of I thought of my own family. Um, and so there's just layers. There's there's layers of identity here. And I think it is really, really great. Another good one. Um, well, well, clap when you land, Elizabeth Acevedo, also very mm -hmm. good. <laughs> um, but no, Patsy, Nicole, Dennis, Ben, I think it's just, it's timeless. I think that's what I love about this book. I know you say you have four, go ahead. Well, my fourth one is really just more of a silly one. It's Madonna's sex book. It's more of a pictorial than it really is a read, but it is a landmark book that everyone should own and thumb through. It's my coffee table book whenever I want to really have a good time get that book it's a classic for in 1992 for those of you who who aren't up to uh, who aren't as well versed in madge she released this book in 1992 called sex um it was in collaboration with her album erotica at the time and it is a sex book where she um explores with all these different fetishes and role play and and fantasies and it's it's really good and she got a lot of flack in 1992 for having the temerity to be a woman and to have something to say about sexual fantasy. And, and she's a white woman. So, you know, she had at least more license than I feel like a lot of other people would have, but she took a lot of lumps for that. I really raised it, Bianca, because I feel like nowadays, so many female artists can, can sing about, say about whatever they want to do. They can make their videos. They can do all these things. And there's, there's really no price to be paid in terms of their career because the blowback that they would have gotten, has the, that has already been paid. And Madonna wasn't the only person doing that, but she was one of them. And so I think a recurring theme of this podcast is my love for her. And I could not- I was just going to, to say- <laughs> The way you talk about me always bringing up Jamaicans is how you find ways to bring up Madonna in all I of the may things. Have so this is episode 20 and I may have mentioned her in 10 of the episodes. At least. And you know what? I'm not shame. I'm not embarrassed and I'm not changing my ways. Yes. Isaiah loves the Madonna. Um, so those are, uh, ugh, look at me just stumbling over my words because Madonna is now on the brain. Those are our suggestions. We also want to hear what you all are reading or what books you recommend for folks to read to as their collection. Uh, just a reminder, and this is a great segue into a reminder for our July book club book, 40 Acres by Dwayne Alexander Smith. Mm -hmm. I am now over a quarter of the way in i just started it it is because i tweeted yesterday when i was getting my feet done and i said i'm starting book <laughs> I'm and good. i now have i Ooh, i am liking this <laughs> <laughs> i am i and it i it i cannot wait for us to have the conversation at the end of the month i'm pretty sure i'm i'm probably gonna be finished with it and then probably about another week but it is very good and you let me know that it will soon be a movie uh, Netflix. on Netflix. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So folks clearly think, and the um, director for Luke Cage, 
I can't think of his name, but he's the one who's doing it with um, also Jay-Z is a part of Mm -hmm. the production. So it sounds like it's going to be like a really good production. So I'm excited about that. And we will have read the book, obviously, by the time the movie comes out. Exactly. But folks get it. It is very, it definitely makes you think it's, it's some ahas in this, (laughs) in this here book. So before we get to the next segment, Bianca, can I give you an on-air apology? Sure. So as I tease, this is episode 20. In episode 18, which would have been two weeks ago, <laughs> I cut out Bianca's segment on Cautiously Optimistic because- Because you're petty. No, in my defense, <laughs> we recorded that episode out of order. And when I went to splice it together, it just, I forgot about it. And so I cut it out and Bianca was legit- angry with me she never gets angry with me really but I can sense through the text message that you were like bitch you cut my segment so I want to publicly apologize to Bianca for cutting her segment two weeks ago and she's obviously brought it back this week so I'm just going to shut up now and let her do this segment that's completely unnecessary wholly unnecessary but that she insists on doing it's fine <laughs> let me let me have nice things <laughs> you get on my nerves let me take a breath I can lean in and give the people what they need because this is Cautiously Optimistic with Bianca Ward, summer edition. Cautiously optimistic when you really want to be happy, but you know that all shenanigans are possible. This week, I am cautiously optimistic about these here Tokyo Olympics, mosquito repellent, and the cleanliness of public pools. Cautiously Optimistic with Bianca Ward. You're welcome. Now, now under the rules of this segment, I'm not allowed to rebut any of that, but so I'm just going to add my own little editorial. If you're getting in a public pool anywhere in America, go home and rethink your life. Why can't people, the community pools are popping right now though. No, 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 no. There you go with that no again. That's going to be my segment. Yours is going to be cautiously optimistic and mine's going to be no, 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 no. Things you don't do. And one of the things you don't do is dip your ass in a public pool. Just don't do that. Get in the tub, get you a kiddie pool in your backyard. Don't, just don't do that. (laughs) Oh wait, but now we talking about privilege because what if you don't have a backyard to put a kiddie pool in? And you're, I'm telling you, the, the public pools are, 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 they can be great. Okay. They can be a very good time. Okay. Proceed with caution though, because you don't know what's in. <laughs> My cousin once described it as like a pool of pee. <laughs> okay. But they're fun. <laughs> On that note. On that note. Tell us what you want to know, feel, and do by emailing us at wardandwebster at gmail.com. You can reach out to us anytime with your show ideas. We would actually love to hear them. And if you have any ideas about how we can cut cautiously optimistic as a segment, send those We're along. not. <clears throat> Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at wardenwebster. And also subscribe to our YouTube channel where we released yeah. videos from this show and outtakes. And I love it and Bianca loves it too. Does she? <laughs> she doesn't. <laughs> and remember, every Saturday, new episodes of Ward and Webster at wardandwebster.com.
I love doing the promos. I love that you were really trying to make this YouTube channel a thing. But if people want what do you mean to trying see? to, it is a thing. Now we don't have that many people watching us yet, but whatever, we're going to grow. We're going to, you got to start somewhere. I have faith in it. And we still need to decide what our um, 1500 download celebration is going to look like. Yes, we've crossed 1200 and on our way now to 1250. So we will be there in the next couple of episodes. I am excited. There will be drinks. <laughs> I'm Isaiah Webster. And I am Bianca Ward. Thank you <laughs> for listening to these here shit nanigans. Be blessed. <laughs> Thank you.